Welcome to another episode of Inside the Passion of Rhythm and Voice. In Rhythm and Voice, we explore upon creative process. Where does something begin? Something must begin somewhere with an intention, a thought, an idea. I have an idea. And today I brought my idea to my uh, good friend, a very talented writer, very intelligent with a nice blend of humor. Can't go wrong with that. And she is going to help me authenticate my idea and uh, we will play around and we will expand uh, within that structure. Uh, so I'm going to say, hi, Victoria. Hi, Lamont. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you for taking your time. Well, this is a one-act play. And in my past experience, uh, the first thing I've ever written was a screenplay. And loosely, it was about corruption in the drug rehabilitation industry, which is what it had become. I had a very good friend of mine who was a VP of communications at the leading drug rehabilitation facility in the country. And initially we were going to collaborate on this piece, but we wanted to, to, uh, to write two different pieces, so that didn't work out. So I went out on my own to tackle this project and what I did, and what my process is, is I do as much research as possible, and then I start to shape my characters and develop my plot line. My creative window is from three in the morning to 10 in the morning, and every day I would get up once I started writing, and this took me about two years from when I first had the idea to when I actually began to sit down and write it. I made it about a quarter of the way through over an extended period of time. And then I hit a block for about six weeks. One morning, I woke up, but I woke up every morning like clockwork, three o'clock, went to my computer, sat behind the screen, had my notepad out, nothing. One morning I heard voices in my head. And what the voices said to me you are trying to force us to do things that we do not want to do. I'm like, all right, what do you want to do? We want to do what we want to do. So at that point, I ripped up all of my two years of research, plot development, character development, got rid of everything. The next morning, I started from scratch and I finished the piece in three days. Wow. And at the end, when I read it, I, I never knew where it was going. It took me on this complete emotional roller coaster ride. And at the end of the day, I read it and I couldn't believe that it came out of me. I was just a vessel. Mm -hmm. You know, so I had given birth mm -hmm. to these characters and let them just play it out. And it was a real high. So, but I still need to go through my process, knowing that in order for me to get to that mm -hmm. point where mm -hmm. I can just tear everything up and let it go, mm -hmm. I still have to go through the 
-hmm. process of being analytical mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. trying to like control everything mm -hmm. in order to get to that point where I can just let it go out the window. Mm -hmm. Now, so that's what I've learned. Mm -hmm. Now, what have you learned in your experience? Well, it's really interesting listening to you because on the you know you're talking about writing fiction, and I actually I'm an historian, so I write nonfiction. I mean, I've written other things, but most recently, what I've been working on, and what I just finished is a you know a work of history. But in a way, what we're kind of doing is not that dissimilar because you're kind of talking about you know sublimating the ego and just listening, right? And in your case, you were listening to these characters who were, to you by that point, had become real and had voices of their own. And then in my case, I'm, you know, I'm trying to access flesh and blood walking around, but without special kind of privileged access to their interior worlds, right? So I'm trying to figure out why people did the things they did, why they said the things they said, what it all meant, uh, without actually being able to oftentimes ask them directly. And unlike, I think, fiction, here you, you kind of acknowledge that limitation because you acknowledge that these are, that you you really have no control over that narrative. I mean, you can't ever have complete control over their narrative because it's their life, right? And their their world and they kind of did what they did and you're trying to just make sense of it. So, you know, a lot of my process in really the first long, long stage before you even get to writing is, is reading, right? And so that's really listening to the sources. And you're trying to basically kind of enter the world that you're trying to understand through different angles. And, you know, in my case, some of those sources are, are just institutional sources, right? What kind of institutions are these people working in? You know, why are they having this meeting? You know, I'm looking at a transcript of a meeting. Who else is at the meeting? You know, why might they kind of make this argument at the meeting? And is that argument true to their position or are they kind of operating within a context in which they're trying to you know in which that point is a means to an end right they're trying mm -hmm. to advance their career or whatever and you can't know really any of that just by reading one document right you got to figure out who all the other people in the room are and what their background is and you know why you know what the power hierarchy is in that room right who and everyone's individual agenda exactly exactly and a lot of the process for me is is really you know listening to the sources and then just kind of taking steps back now what's difficult is because it's history and i i don't think it would be dissimilar for fiction but i can just speak from my perspective you know, you could be listening forever, right? So at what point do you actually start to write, right? And and at what point do you feel like, okay, I, I think now I understand enough about what's going on to be able to actually tell a story and make sense of what happened and explain why things happened the way they did. Now, in your case, you're kind of almost describing this, like, almost supernatural experience in which, you know, you heard your characters speak and then you allowed them to speak. I mean, I, I've never had that. In my case, it's always, and this is, again, this is, again, the 
product of the institution in which I work, right, is that occasionally I would have, I have moments where I would feel clarity, right, enough clarity that I can just write and kind of, you know, it flows out of me and I know that's the same thing. Right. But that's rare. Is it? For me. Most of the time it comes out because at a certain point you just have to write because the writing is expected out of you and you have to meet deadlines, right? And so I'm working, I'm operating in a very different context in which it feels much more, it's much more dependent for me, I think, on discipline than on inspiration. And basically whether or not I feel that kind of clarity that would move me forward with great confidence that I'm kind of on the right path or not, (laughs) I still have to kind of try to sit with it and move it along in whatever way I can. So it's, you know, I think that, that, that becomes more frustrating. And I think that's why, in my experience, it requires so much revision because you feel the com- you compelled to keep writing, right? So you write, and then at a certain point later, you actually might get clarity about that thing that you already wrote, and you realize actually no, it wasn't. That's not the point, right? The point is something else, and you have to go back and rewrite it my book in my case was you have some moment of inspiration you know you have some clarity I'm going to tell this story and then you you know run into a wall you're not sure where it goes from there or why it goes that way as opposed to something else but you kind of have keep showing up and he keep writing right and maybe you're not writing that maybe you switch gears and you're writing something else or you're kind of you return in my case i find really helpful to return to the sources i go back and i read the transcripts and i kind of meditate on them and i think about you know why is this person writing this letter but i'm still writing because of this like compulsion that i have to have writing done that you have to have forward progress yes exactly and so that's just like me for showing up at three o'clock in the morning Exactly. Morning, exactly. But nothing coming out of me. Right. But I showed up. Yes. I did my my half you, of it. Exactly. You know. Exactly. I think the only difference is that, in my case, you know, there was somebody checking on my progress. You know, right. so I had to kind of show somebody that I. I, you know, I couldn't just say, I've been there every day and it's not coming out. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so I would just compulsively write, you know, because I was like, I, I wrote 10 pages. Here they are, you know? And, and, then, and then later what would happen is I would realize, no, that was, you know, I was on the wrong track. I need to go back and revise. And so the book, you know, people, the funny part about writing is that um, people who don't write when they you know when they say you know when you tell them oh i just wrote a book they're like how many words is it <laughs> you say this is like the biggest question and they're like oh it's you know about 135,000 words and you know they're like how did you write all those words <laughs> and, and my and my i'm always to me that's just so, such a hilarious question because like i wrote 500,000 words you know it's those are the, the you know there were so many words right. that had to that be not written included. right to that get were, to that yeah, 135,000 exactly. yeah like if i if it was just about making the word count i mean i could have been done in six months you know <laughs> 
so it's not just like counting words it's it's really about um figuring out the right the right narrative and that's going to take way more words than what actually lands on the page i mean that's that's kind of my process and it does ultimately come down to intuition right but um you know it's it's really frustrating for social scientists right so history i'm a historian by training and in some places history is considered one of the humanities and in other places it's considered a social science so it's really this kind of border discipline right um and and what's the difference between the two well in one you tell stories right in the humanities and in one you ostensibly are documenting and analyzing the truth right and but they both have narratives absolutely it's just that the social scientists think they don't right so as far as i'm concerned we're all telling stories but they think that the historians are kind of storytellers whereas they're scientists right like political scientists sociologists like they think of themselves as much more as scientific right so in my you know in my experience there's some frustration from you know um actually at the institution where i work we're with the social sciences so i'm in the same division as economists right like which is hilarious given what we do um but you know when you think about well what is our method as historians right this is something that you know people talk about and think about and how do you know you're on the right track it's like the best the, be- the most important tool for a historian is intuition right it's not like you know data sets and you know whatever you know anthropologists do it's it's into it's like it, intuition and honesty really those two things right because nobody will ever really be able to verify if you told the the right story exactly right and so i mean they could go back to the sources but it's not like it's not a verifiable science you couldn't run the same data set as what i put in my book and check if it comes out the same way right, right? so basically with a historian you know when you're doing history you have to trust as a audience member or reader that that historian has good intuition and good faith, right? That they are not trying to lie to you, you know, that they're- And manipulate. And manipulate you, and that that they are, that they have some kind of special intuition for, you know, for making sense of this stuff. And in order to get that intuition, of course, you have all sorts of training and background reading and all of that, but that's, you know, but it, but to a social scientist, intuition and good faith is kind of like not a skill, like it's not, a, it's not a, a method, but that's what we do, I think, mostly. So that's, that's, you know, it's kind of trying to just get all of the component parts necessary to be able to read a source and intuit what that source is telling you all the background reading all the kind of you know figuring out institutions figuring out the people figuring right because that's how you right. can actually intuit one thing over another so that's the kind of the the scientific part is right is all the data gathering mm-hmm. but then you know then you're just telling a story and you're in the good faith that the story you're telling is the one that you believe helps us understand whatever is happening so so what is your learning from your experience where it's like oh okay is it at the end of the day it's relying on your intuition no matter how much you've read it's um i guess it's it's to accept the 
all of the kind of invisible parts of the process as necessary to the final product. So, you know, I was saying, you know, 500,000 words, right? So let's say I wrote, you know, five times as much as what actually came out. And to some, from one perspective, that's a huge colossal waste of time, right? I mean, that's like 400,000 failed words. It's just like my two years and having to throw everything out. Exactly. But that's part of the process. Exactly. And that's kind of what you were saying too, right? And then you do it in three days, right? Because you've, that's what you needed to have acquired along the way in order to get to a place where it can flow out of you without obstacles. Precisely. And so, so that's the biggest learning is like to kind of accept the frustration of that you know, two years or those 400,000 words and kind of um, have some faith that or trust that that's going to land you somewhere uh, ultimately because it has in the past, you know, I mean, that's really all you can do, you know, because you don't know, you know, you might write 400,000 words and then just never get there. And that's that's where the darkness comes in, right? Yes. <laughs> it's so it's so dark. Yeah. In that place. Right. And so it's like if you don't have faith that you're actually not that you're actually productively moving towards something as opposed to just daily failing at it, then it can get very dark and you start doubting whether you even have a story to tell at all, right? Right. So so that's the, so I think that's the biggest learning process of it is like having the faith that you have a story to tell and that when it's time, you know, it'll come out. But for me, you can't just wait for the inspiration. You got to keep showing up. You got to keep just failing, you know, quote unquote, every day. Because if you don't do that, then it's kind of not, it's not really going to ever show up. So that's, that's kind of, so it's a frustrating process. It is. But even with scientists, I mean, you know, Thomas Edison, I mean, how many times did he yeah. show up before he, I mean, how many mm-hmm. failures mm-hmm. did he have? It's not, it, you know, the attitude is like, oh, well, okay, this didn't work. I'll try this. Right, right, like right. You just keep sure. trying different sure. things and then you get the clarity. Yeah, I think that's, I think, right, so that's a good way of, yeah, making that analogy that it's an, ex, you know, you're experimenting and... Yeah, you're just experimenting. Yeah, yeah. You know, seeing what happens. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, yeah, and so a lot of the experiments are going to be failed experiments, but they are successful in making clear what it isn't, right? So Precisely. Yeah, so that makes So sense. I come to you with this idea, and you're the perfect person to come to because you... You can give an historic perspective, uh, the perspective of a Russian woman, and you understand the American mentality. So I've taken this American professor who is in St. Petersburg, and the backdrop is in the contemporary art scene, and your brother is in the art scene in New York, so you add value from that perspective as well. And you're a professor. My guy's a professor. So you add value to that perspective as well. So he's been in this social circle with these three other women who were once his students who have launched this contemporary art gallery in St. Petersburg that's really hot and jumping and they're really successful. Well, one of uh, the art gallery owners, there are three of them, 
suddenly realizes she shifts her perspective and and this is where the one act play is from this American professor being a friend in a social circle to all of a sudden being a potential life partner. So that's a huge shift. And with that shift in perspective comes tension. All right? You're looking at something different. There's a lot of tension there. So I really want to capture this, this tension. So we have, uh, you know, a lot of conflicts here. I want to explore those conflicts. And I want to release the tension. And I don't know how it's going to happen. But I want fate to play a hand in at the end, which gives them an opportunity to move them forward or move them apart or whatever. But fate plays its hand. So I'm here to authenticate. (laughs) So let's just poke some holes in that narrative. Mm -hmm. Okay. So where do you want to begin? The initial part of it is, is what's he doing there? You know, and is he there? You know, if, if she's taking, if one of these women is taking this man seriously as a potential life partner, you know, uh, then, you know, I would need to understand why an American professor is in St. Petersburg and if he's there long term and if he's, you know, if he's, you know, what, what it is that he is there to do um, or if he's kind of just passing through. And so then the obstacle is how do you get this guy to stay? So I'm trying to understand you know, his motivations for being there, um, you know, how long he's been there, because one of the things that's important to keep in mind is, you know, first of all, is it taking place in contemporary Russia, right? Yes. So, you know, it's not actually that simple to be an American teaching in contemporary Russia. And it's by no means obvious that you would be staying for any long-term period of time. Right, so that's up in the air. Right. So that's already something that would be a point of tension. You know, is does he want to stay? If he does want to stay, is it even an option for him to stay? I mean, just literally, legally, institutionally, what would have to happen for him to stay? You know, I mean, So what brings in the question is stability. Whose stability? His. But he doesn't, I mean, he's, that's the, so the, the question is, is he there for stability or is he there for experience? You know, those are different things. He's there for experience because he can be there. Because, right, because right. he's unattached and, right. he's, and he's interested and curious and he loves that part of the world. Exactly. And, but the question is, you know, is it even an, a conceivable option for this man to to transform experience and curiosity into stability and a permanent life there, right? Um, And what would have to happen for him to actually do that? What would have to happen? I don't know. I mean, I think, certainly I would think that he, he would be pumping the brakes on any efforts to, to make that transformation for him by someone else. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. So um, 
So what would have to happen? Well, logistically, right, just legally, right, what would have to happen? Well, you know, he would have to have a permanent position, right? So he couldn't just be there on an exchange. He would have to at least be able to work there permanently. In today's Russia, that's very unlikely because they've shut down the only Western university in St. Petersburg. And so there are not very many places, if any, really. Uh, Well, no, actually, no, there's one other place where you can still work as a foreigner and they're interested in having you work there um, oh, long term. Really? There is, yes. What is that place? Yeah, it's called the the Higher School of Economics. Um, but he's a art history professor. Well, so they have, it's a kind of social science heavy school, but it does have other disciplines in it. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's possible. And it has a branch in St. Petersburg. Oh, okay. So that, you know, that is still an option. I, I actually And you said there was one that. other too, right? Well... They're kind of connected, but yeah, there's there's a, there's a um, an institution called the Russian the National Academy of the Russian Administration, which is basically the higher ed institution of the government and that of the presidential administration. And so it's a university, but it's kind of intended as a training ground for civil servants, kind of. You know? Oh, okay. But they are interested because civil servants need to be globally oriented and you know, well-educated, they they actually do invest quite a bit in getting good faculty there. So there are, I mean, it's possible, but, okay. but the kind of liberal, you know, westernized um, environment that would be the natural home for somebody like him would have been European University in St. Petersburg, which has just been shut down. So this is already, right? So there's a kind of logistical obstacle, right? Let's say he's he's there before it's shut down. That could be one of your tension points, right? That he's working there. It's been there since the early 90s. It's been this totally stable institution. It's respected around the world. Nobody sees that it's going to be suddenly shut down. You know, there start to be kind of moments or echoes coming of time of of that coming up, but but there were, lo- there were lots of people who worked there thinking they were going to be working there forever. And then suddenly they aren't. So that's one thing that could happen, right? So mm-hmm. what would have to happen if, for him to stay? Well, he'd either have to find another job, you know, or he would he would have to want to stay enough minus a job to, I don't know, to, to marry a Russian woman and have citizenship, which would open up other opportunities for him em- employment-wise, right? So that's the kind of... It would all it would immediately take something that is kind of in a kind of early stage of romance and you know magical and mysterious and just like crush it with the banality of you know <laughs> kind of like you know of reality of reality right and so and so like you know this is the thing and, and you know so so it's like you you want to kind of see where it goes and you're really wondering and you're just kind of tentatively exploring and then suddenly you have to make a choice and that choice is being dictated by factors that are you know, completely independent of you, right? So so that's like, that's one scenario, right? Is like, how would this guy actually stay there if he even wants to, right? So that's that's one. Two, there's also the cultural thing, and I'm kind of returning to this, that they were his students. I don't know what to make of that, right? Because for an American professor, that's kind of like, um, you know, maybe like 30, 40 years ago, this was something that would have been like kind of, 
acceptable. But, you know, there's a kind of, you know, like a, a um, embargo, I would say, on, on those kinds of relationships with students. and. But they were students a while ago. I mean... That's true. I mean, and it's Russia. And it's Russia, so it's not the same. Right. But but when you said it, I immediately was, like, kind of jarred back, thinking, like, oh, well, this guy, that would be a big obstacle culturally for him. Like, I would think if he's, like, a thinking man, decades ago to marry your female student, your female graduate student, just par for the course, you know? It was, like, totally normal and cachet in its own right. And now it's, like, kind of considered transgressive. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 not something that people. It would put you on the margins of polite society in academia right now. <laughs> I mean, I'm serious right now. Maybe since it's Russia and you're far from the from the center of 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 the kind of cultural matrix would work. I don't know, but what I'm saying is like right now it would be. It's hard for me to imagine. I mean, things are like. Have you been reading the news? If you're getting fired for having relationships with with grad students, with students, I mean, you know, it's just so this would be another obstacle, right? right. Which could again add tension. Which is like nothing he would be doing is illegal. Yeah. I'm just talking about you know the cultural, like I said, it, because now that doesn't give you cachet, but actually puts you kind of into the margins of transgression with your colleagues and your peers that would be something that oh i could see that but the point is this would be like you know you would pump the brakes a number of times before you took your foot off the brakes so so that's the other thing that would make it interesting okay is like his kind of internal monologue or dialogue (laughs) rather with himself all right now let's get back to her perspective okay now she makes this shift let's get back to the shift the shift of Seeing someone as a friend, Mm -hmm. right, in your social circle, to a potential partner. What is going on in your head? How are you seeing things differently? Let's talk about that from a, a woman's perspective, from a Russian woman's perspective. Let's talk about that shift, because that's a huge shift. Yeah, well, it's a huge shift in any context well yes so but in this context it would have some specificities i think this concludes the episode a celebration of process along with the lead-in to the next episode the celebration of the journey the next episode is available now on insidethepassion.com in the rhythm and voice category. Both episodes feature my dear friend, Victoria Smolkin, professor of Soviet studies and a published author. Victoria has recently completed a book titled A Sacred Space is Never Empty, a history of Soviet atheism. Go to the episode pages of InsideThePassion.com, the rhythm and voice category, for links to Victoria Smolkin's book, A Sacred Space is Never Empty. Gotta say, I love that title. Allow me to spell it out for you, just in case you want to write it down. Victoria, the traditional spelling with a C. Smolkin, that's S, Sierra, M, Mike, O, Oscar, L, Lima, 
K Kilo, I India, and November. And my name is Lamont, creator of InsideThePassion.com. The following are excerpts from the next episode, The Celebration of the Journey, on InsideThePassion.com, where Victoria and I explore potential tension points for the two main characters, and we take a deeper dive into the narrative. Thank you for listening. But what about the men? Are they are they going to find a woman like that attractive? Russian men as a partner? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. So she might be in a situation, again, not entirely unfamiliar to me, where where, you know the things that she has the choices she has made you know may not make her an attractive partner to the majority of men well we don't know I don't know what he has had he you know he you know the kind of the most likely version is he's if he's been in Russia for a long time, he's, you know, had experiences with Russian women. And they're probably not like this woman. They're not. So that's, you know, because you're kind of describing somebody who is specific, where she's kind of in a league of her own. It would require kind of deliberate choices to be made and then you get to the more interesting part which is how emotionally brave are these people to even make those choices you know let's even talk like a look bit at those that. choices let's talk about that you ready i think all right you you lead the way all right, so we were talking about, we're talking about emotional bravery. 